This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our listeners who support us at patreon.com and by Verso Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like is 10 Myths About Israel by Elon Pape. In this groundbreaking book, published on the 50th anniversary of the occupation, the outspoken and radical Israeli historian Elon Pape examines the most contested ideas concerning the origins and identity of the contemporary state of Israel. The 10 myths that Pape explores, repeated endlessly in the media, enforced by the military, accepted without question by the world's governments, reinforce the regional status quo. He explores the claim that Palestine was an empty land at the time of the Balfour Declaration, as well as the formation of Zionism and its role in the early decades of nation-building. He asks whether the Palestinians voluntarily left their homeland in 1948, and whether June 1967 was a war of no choice. Turning to the myths surrounding the failures of the Camp David Accords and the official reasons for the attacks on Gaza— Pape explains why the two-state solution is no longer viable. Ten Myths About Israel by Elon Pape. Out now from Verso Books. Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm broadcasting from Providence, Rhode Island. This episode is made up of the most important clips from my interviews on Palestine and Israel, drawn from the Dig archives and condensed into roughly two hours. We've heard many calls for more context over the past couple weeks, and this episode is a modest effort at providing an accessible account of this history, both far-flung and relatively recent. From the Balfour Declaration and British imperialism to Netanyahu's desperate governing coalitions. If you haven't yet listened to my interview with Noura Arakat and Ariel Angel, the one that I posted earlier this week, please do check that out too. A brief reminder that we can only put all this work into the show and then put it out there for everyone to listen to for free with no paywall because listeners like you voluntarily contribute at patreon.com slash the dig. If you can afford to contribute, please do so to keep the dig up and running for the long haul. We provide a critical public education service to the left, and we depend on your support to do that. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash the dig. I've also included a link for Palestinian relief in the show notes. Donate generously. Okay, here's my first clip. It's from my October 2019 interview with Noura Arakat on her book, Justice for Some, Law and the Question of Palestine. Noura is a Palestinian human rights attorney a professor at Rutgers, New Brunswick, co-founding board member of Jadalia, and an editorial board member of the Journal of Palestine Studies. In this clip, Noura lays out the early history of the Zionist settler colonial project. Her story begins with Britain's 1917 Balfour Declaration, which made it official policy of the British imperial government to support the creation of a national home for the Jewish people in what was then overwhelmingly Arab-majority Palestine. Anticipating the end of World War I and the dismemberment of the Ottoman Empire at the hands of European colonial powers. The segment ends with the establishment of the State of Israel in 1948, which occasioned the Nakba, or catastrophe. Jewish settlers seized control of 78% of historic Palestine 
and roughly half the Palestinians who had lived in that territory were displaced beyond the new state's borders, to Egyptian-controlled Gaza, to the Jordanian-controlled West Bank, as well as to Jordan, Lebanon, Syria, and beyond, becoming refugees who Israel denied the right to return. Nura Arakat, welcome back to The Dig. Hi, Daniel. Thank you for having me. Let's dive into the history. You write that Zionist settler colonialism has, since its inception, created exceptions to the law and then used the law to legitimate those exceptions. The first and foundational exception was under the mandate system that was established by World War I's victors. The 1922 British Mandate for Palestine drawing on the 1917 Balfour Declaration, made creating a Jewish national home in Palestine the central purpose of Britain's mandatory tutelage over the area and referred to Palestinians as simply, quote, existing non-Jewish communities in Palestine. Explain the mandate period and how Palestine was made into an international legal exception to the League of Nations norm. So a quick word on sovereign exception. This is where the sovereign declares that some imperative makes necessary the suspension of the application of law in order to achieve a political objective, where this is where the powerful have the greatest advantage in using the law, because the weak can't declare the exception, but the strong can. In declaring it, they're not just saying that now whatever they do is legal, to the contrary, what I argue is that they're using something in law that we uh, that's known as sui generis, unlike anything other, which basically says that because the fact pattern in this situation is so unique that there can be no precedent and there can be no analogy, thereby giving rise to the need for the sovereign to create new law where no adequate law exists. A and new so- situation it requires new law. The situation requires new law, but it's not, you know, it's not because any any powerful, you know, party can just do what they want. Right. But the fact that that's not what they're doing, they're saying that the fact pattern is unique. Therefore, we must create new law because we don't have existing law that we can apply in this case. So there there is an appeal to the law's logic and, you know, the law's legitimating function in this instance. And so in creating that new law. That is where the exception is enshrined and how it becomes a form of governance that is, in fact, not temporary, but does have a permanent feature. So, okay, enough on the the, the high, <laughs> kind of <the> lofty <laughs> approach. Let's bring it down to earth. How does this apply in the question of Palestine and in the mandate? I start in the mandate because in most accounts on the question of Palestine, in the worst accounts, we start in 1967 which is basically to start from the moment of military occupation, but that works to basically normalize Israel's establishment in 1948. And then in other accounts, we start in 1948, which is much better because then at least we're incorporating Israel's establishment, the removal of indigenous peoples and and, and the treatment of the native Palestinians who never fled. 
I started in 1917 because what's happening in Israel, even to the present day, is, is a reflection of a colonial legacy that begins with the British mandate. You know, in terms of land tenure, you can even stretch back to look at, at Ottoman, at the Ottoman Empire and, and Ottoman regulation of land. I start in 1917 to basically highlight this exception. So in the Balfour Declaration, Lord Balfour basically promises uh, Palestine as a site of Jewish settlement for a global Jewish population, never promises um, a Jewish state, but does promise a Jewish national home. And the idea was that this would be a cultural and international Mecca, because for the British, what's important at this point is not necessarily, you know, an answer to the Jewish question either. They're not that concerned uh, with the Jewish question, but they are concerned with ongoing penetration into the Middle East and, and domination. And the promising of a Palestinian national home would basically append that desire because it would basically mean independence for the Palestinians and the British can no longer no longer be there. And they don't promise Jewish independence either or Jewish national independence. They're just going to promise a Jewish national home, which means that the British will be able to intervene in order to protect the minority population and justify their presence. It'll extend the clock on their presence and give them a pretext to keep an eye on, say, the flow of oil through the region? Oh, you know, something simple like that. Minor consideration, <laughs> minor considerations for colonial powers. Yes, absolutely. Um, and they were very concerned about uh, French presence um, in the Middle East and where they, you know, they had established their mandate in Lebanon um, and, and Syria. And so they were they were concerned about their ongoing presence and, and, and how they were going to compete with them. Now, the problem is, is that how are they going to promise uh, Palestine as a site of Jewish settlement when when these territories have been declared as provisionally independent by the League of Nations um, after the uh, First World War? Um, and these are the vanquished territories of the Ottoman Empire. And, and they're declared, you know, Area A, which means they're provisionally independent. They just need a bit of tutelage in order to be able to stand on their feet and become independent. And so here's where we we here's where it gets complicated and where legal argumentation comes into play. On the one hand, the British are making an argument that Palestine was accepted from this arrangement. And there is an entire exchange of letters. This is um, the McMahon-Ihsin correspondence about whether or not Palestine was actually um, exempted from the promise of independence. Um, and then there's the other issue, which is that what the League of Nations Charter says about you, you must consult the local population to understand who they prefer for, you know, to be the mandatory power. You must consult the local population about what they actually desire. And then there's the other issue, which is in, and, and this is the exceptional part, where the Brit where Lord Balfour is basically defining 90% of the native population in, in the negative, that they are non-Jewish. So it's not that they don't know that Palestinians are there. They clearly know that they're there. They just don't think that they matter and they shouldn't matter. And the reason that they, and it's, you know, in Lord Balfour's own words, it's, you know, Zionism, be it right or wrong, is far more noble than the whims of some 700,000 Arabs. You know, the, the logic for it. So here's the unique fact pattern, right? So here's where the unique fact pattern 
and the and the exceptional framework are going to be co-constitutive. The unique fact pattern is that this Palestine, unlike the other um, Area A territories, is of uh, of great significance to the three monotheistic religions and not just to the the native population that lives there, number one. Number two, the, the cause of establishing a Jewish national home is so noble that we can't look away. And number three, frankly, it's just a racist argument that this is a population that's expendable and anyway um, is not fit to govern itself. So those three things become the unique fact pattern that then give rise to what the British themselves and later the League of Nations describes as a sui generis mandate. They literally say Palestine is unlike in the interwar years, this is right, that Palestine is unlike any other area, a mandate, and therefore it will not be subject to the same law that would apply to the other area, a mandates. And that logic becomes co-constitutive, the fact pattern and the logic, which makes all Palestinian appeals to the law in order to insist on their national independence fall flat. Even this particular exception, though, around Palestine is also sort of an extreme case of the of of the general issue of this huge discrepancy in how the concept of self-determination after World War 1 in terms of mm. how it's read by colonizers on the one mm. hand and the colonized on the other. You know, self-determination like all law is has a contested meaning. And in the aftermath of the First World War as it's presented, it's not equivalent to national self-determination. It's for the colonizers, right? For the imperial powers, it is justifying their ongoing presence. It basically, you know, assumes that native populations will be able to, able to govern themselves when they most closely mirror European and colonial powers. And so you are at the outset enshrining European, uh, a European model of sovereignty that all other colonized peoples must aspire to. But in order to aspire to it and in order to, to achieve it, they have to model this European structure, which then justifies the presence of these colonial powers in these territories in the framework of a benevolent occupier, uh, a benevolent colonizer that's basically uh, training them to stand on their feet. So here you have self-determination, which becomes a tool to, uh, to legitimate the ongoing penetration of these colonial powers. And so it takes outright revolt in the interwar years and through what becomes the Third World Revolt, culminating in the 1960 uh, UN Declaration 1514 that basically condemns colonialism as an illegitimate form of governance. That's when self-determination then takes on new meaning. And it takes on new meaning um, that's tantamount, that basically makes it tantamount to national independence. And this also evidences how law can change over time based on the context and based on, you know, that that and the contest, that political contest that's taking place. Well, another important piece of context involves that that revolt, which Palestinians were a part of from very Mm -hmm. early on, from 1936 to 1939. Palestinians launched what was called the Great Revolt against Zionist settlement as British colonial policy, which I think is extremely important context. And and Palestinians won a huge victory. 
Britain's 1939 White Paper, which called for a policy reversal on Jewish settlement. You write, quote, Palestinians forced Britain to reevaluate its Zionist policy, not by the use of moral and legal persuasion, but by changing the material conditions on the ground. They effectively challenged their exclusion from the promise of self-determination and the negation of their status as a political community by undermining the structure that upheld the framework of exception. Explain your analysis here and why that victory didn't hold. So in the course of the Great Revolt, Palestinians basically uh, first go on strike, then they declare a tax revolt, then there's an armed uprising. It lasts for three years. It is, it's overwhelming, and it reflects a grassroots uprising amongst Palestinians themselves because as today we have a schism between a Palestinian grassroots and a Palestinian official leadership in the interwar years, there was also a Palestinian elite leadership in the form of the Arab High, High Committee and the Palestinian grassroots, and it was the grassroots that that revolted, that rejected this idea of appealing to the British in order to prove their eligibility for independence and self-determination and decide we're just going to have to displace them altogether in order to end Zionist policy. But in the course of that, they actually unearthed the Hussein McMahon correspondence, this exchange of letters between Sir Henry McMahon and Sharif Hussain, where Sharif Hussain promises to ally with the British in, in the First World War against the Ottomans on condition that in the case of victory, that the, the former Ottoman territories will be able to become independent. Right. McMahon writes, yes, of course, that will that will happen with the exception of a particular territory. And that's what becomes the object of the legal debate. None of that legal argumentation mattered. What mattered was what happened in the Great Revolt between 1936 to 1939, when the Palestinians actually militarily took over Jerusalem for eight hours, forced the British to deploy 25,000 troops on the ground. It, it required the British to actually squash it so forcefully that by the end of the Great Revolt, they had decimated 10 percent of the adult male population who was either exiled, imprisoned, or murdered um, by by the end of this, um, and so so whereas they they refused where they refused to revisit the legal argumentation that Palestinians were making that we were never exempt from the promise of independence in the course of revolt, the British Colonial Office and the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, I forget the exact name, where they are actually unearthing this debate. And whereas before they said unequivocally Palestine was excluded for independence, in the course of the Great Revolt, they say, well, we can't say it was unequivocally excluded, but maybe it could be excluded. But Palestinians can also make the argument that it wasn't. So even on just the level of legal interpretation and legal debate, the legal debate, the grounds for legal debate change. And so that's the aftermath. They get the white paper. They get the document that said where the British say we were wrong. It was wrong to basically declare this as, you know, a site of unfettered Jewish settlement and and land sales. And we have to regulate this. Uh, They don't promise um, Palestinian independence either. But they say and they, by the way, never necessarily describe it as Palestinian. They describe it as Arab. But they do say that they will subject it to a referendum. 
that at least now there is eligibility for Palestinian independence. The white paper never comes to fruition for a whole host of of reasons, not least of which is Palestinian internal short-sightedness that's well-documented by um, historian Porath as well as Rashid Khalidi. But ultimately, the biggest, biggest reason that it never gets implemented or, or seen through is because of the Second World War. And this is in 1939 when it's issued. The Second World War is on the horizon. Um, by the time the Second World War is over, Churchill is now in power. The balance of power has, has has drastically changed. And now there's another imperative of for the United Nations, the now created United Nations, to respond to uh, the crisis of Jewish refugees. Which a lot of the West is responding to. I'm just by not letting Jewish refugees in. The U.S. systematically did everything it could at multiple levels to keep Jewish ref- displaced persons out. Well, that's the thing. I mean, you know, one of the things about how this is framed for, and, and I think that the, the discussion is most, you know, reductionist and, and unhelpful in the United States because of our role in this story. We're not a third party. We are part of, we are part of the problem. Um, and so here we have the most unhelpful approach to this question. The British and the U.S., and European powers that basically lobby and advocate for the establishment of a Jewish national home and a, and a state um, in the aftermath of the Second World War are not just driven because of empathy for the refugee quest, Jewish refugee question. At this point, they don't. It's an anti-Semitic motive. It's an anti-Jewish bigotry. They don't want them in their country. They don't want to have to resolve the you know the, a Jewish question and the exclusion of Jews from a European polity which enshrined, you know, a, a particular form of white European Christian supremacy that has excluded Jews first on religious grounds and then within an enlightenment framework and so much of the drive to establish a Jewish state is also a drive to not have to absorb Jewish refugees. I mean, this is really problematic, but it also means that this is unfinished business. And there was all this outrage recently over Netanyahu's new nationality law, but this is privileging Jewish nationality is is, is far from new. It's foundational. As, as the husband of a Jewish woman, I'm not Jewish myself, I still have a legal right to Israeli citizenship, if I read your work correctly, that is denied to Palestinians driven from their home by armed terror. It's hard to think of a clearer example of the fundamental racism underpinning Zionist ideology as expressed through law that's just core to the state of Israel. You know, some, you know, you say it like that, and, and for so many people who understand this or have visited, it seems, you know, so commonsensical. What is the problem? It's so obvious. And yet why this becomes so controversial is precisely because of the way that Zionists have framed the story of being Jews as native to this land. And so what they're doing is not colonization. They can't colonize what's theirs. They, you know, they're redeeming the land and liberating it from these Arabs who are actually not from there and can go everywhere else. And so for, you know, for us looking, you know, at the nation state law passed in July 2018, it's basically an explicit declaration that Israel is a Jewish state and it makes it a constitutional obligation to settle all of these lands in the West Bank 
with throughout Israel that the only people who are entitled to self-determination are Jews, notwithstanding the Palestinians who are you know, citizens who are 20% of Israeli population, notwithstanding, obviously, the nearly 5 million Palestinians who live in the West Bank and in the Gaza Strip who are denied their sovereignty on the one hand and excluded from any kind of voting rights on the other, you know. And notwithstanding the diaspora either as well. The diaspora of where, you know, two thirds of the Palestinian population lives, you know, anybody. So here you have this very explicit law where Israel is saying, we are racist. We are going to, you know, make this a Jewish only state. That's going to be a constitutional norm of ours. This is what we want. That's where Richard Spencer can look at the, you know, respond to the nation state law and say, you know, Israel is now providing a model of European sovereignty. This is what all European and Western states should do, which is basically declare themselves uh, a state for white people. That's all we want to do anyway here in the United States. What's wrong with that? Right. And so you can look at that and all of our logic that would, you know, this universal logic that can declare it white supremacy in the U.S., that can declare its mixed admixture with military force as fascism in places now in the U.S. and in other places like India, where Hindu nationalism and, and militarism is certainly at a rise or in Brazil. But we get to Israel's doorstep and that, you know, that logic just falls. That white supremacist framework becomes a state, the state of Israel in 1948, when Zionist troops systematically expelled Palestinians from their home and declared a Jewish state comprising, I think it's 78 percent of mandate territory. How did Zionists deploy violence in such a way as to reduce the Palestinian population within that territory by nearly 90% within a year of the state of Israel's creation? How did this mass violence targeting civilians to ensure a, quote, decisive Jewish demographic majority, how did that become legalized in retrospect? In other words, as you write, how was it that, quote, the state's establishment retroactively legitimated Israel's founding violence. Why is it significant that Israel is now establishing 78% of the mandate? When the UN partitions uh, Palestine, and Palestinians have always been against partition. They do not want to split the baby. They want to keep the baby. They're the majority. Let Jews remain as a protected minority who can then, you know, immigrate as Palestinian citizens, right? And so they're against partition. And that's what Resolution 181 did in November 1947, which basically, you know, established that 55 percent of the mandate would be become the Jewish uh, state and 45 percent would become the Arab state. Arabs don't reject this. They get the least fertile ground. They're getting the they're getting 45 percent, even though they're the unequivocal majority at this point. It's a 70, 30 split, 70 percent. Palestinian, 30% Jewish. So, and they don't want to partition the land. So there's a rejection of partition. And this is really key because Zionists use the Palestinian rejection of partition as basically their surrender of what 181 promises will be an Arab state. So Zionists then argue, well, Palestinians rejected partition and went to war. Therefore, they can't appeal to 181 to say that they have any legitimacy to establish a state or have a right to self-determination. This becomes really key. So the fact that when Israel establishes itself on 78% of the territory, notice that they, they've basically exceeded 
the boundaries that have been allotted by Resolution 181, even though Israel bases its legal legitimacy on that very resolution. Well, how do they do it? How do they recalibrate the demographic balance? If it's 70% Palestinians and 30% Jews, it's, you know, we have been told for years by Zionists, and this is before the military, Israeli military archives become public, that the Arab leaders told the, told the Palestinians to flee so that they can destroy Israel. So that's why they leave. And then that's why they're never allowed to come home. So, you know, this is, this is the subject of the greatest amount of historiography. Once the archives become public, we have Israeli historians, the new historians, telling us actually there were never those, that was not actually what happened. What, you know, there's an other story to be told about the, the, the Palestinian refugee population. The best that we get in these historical, you know, accounts, the, even the revised ones, is that, okay, fine, Defin didn't tell the Palestinians to flee, but also we can't agree that Israel ethnically cleansed Palestine because there isn't an actual order to ethnically cleanse. There's nothing in the archives that, that uh, you know, with few exceptions, where, you know, Ben-Gurion tells Israeli armed forces, force them out, remove them. And because of the lack of that evidence, you can't say that this what, there was intent to remove. This is where I add, you know, something that'll come up in, in cont- Israel's contemporary wars, especially in the Gaza Strip that we've been seeing vividly, but the seed of what they call defensive force. Israel is def- has defined, or Zionists have defined, that in order to be a state, in order to fulfill Zionist ambitions of establishing a Jewish state, it must be an 80% majority Jewish. And that's a demographic balance that they can't achieve where it's a 70-30 split. And so, and they also know that the, even the powers that support them, the UN, the US, the UK, do not want to use force in order to establish partition because it, it'll be counterproductive. And so Zionist forces basically take it upon themselves to complete this radical population redistribution, so to speak, in, in, in very cleansed terms, and the land distribution, where they're going to now have control over 78% of the territory. And they do it under a framework of defensive force, which basically defines the presence of Palestinians as a threat and define as a threat because they can actually house Palestinian fighters. And so now this legitimates why they can bomb Palestinian villages into rubble, because doing that will then eliminate a a place for the Palestinian guerrillas to take shelter. And it basically justifies under that same framework, Palestinian removal beyond their borders in order for Zionist forces to be able to to take to have a military advantage over hilltops or certain positions where they want to establish military military corridors. So this is where we see Zionist forces both securitize Palestinians and use the framework of defensive force even when they're aggressively attacking Palestinians, targeting them, using collective punishment in order to achieve their military advantage and how they can come out the other end and say, 
Well, we never had a military order to remove. They just happened to flee. It was the outcome of this kind of, you know, these military operations between November 19 or December 1947, I should say, and March 1949, when the armistice agreements between Israel and, and the belligerent Arab states are established, that we see 80% of the native po Palestinian population removed from what becomes Israel. Once Israel becomes a state, you know, declares its independence and is accepted by the UN as a member state, by the way, not at its first application because of these controversies, but once it's accepted as a, as a state, it now has the protection of the UN Charter, which it protects its territorial integrity as well as promises against um, any form of external intervention so that the force that it uses now becomes beyond reproach. It's too late. You can't. It's now embodied in the state itself. Um, and what was what could have been violent and genocidal in a different had had the outcome been diff different is now recast as revolutionary force necessary to establish Israel's independence. They're imbued with state sovereignty and the state's legitimate use of violence retroactively. Exactly. Palestinians have a saying that Israelis have mastered an artistry of cruelty. And yet that's precisely our challenge. And that's, you know, it's not just to resist this moment, but it's to, re to resist this moment and to imagine what comes after it so that we don't put ourselves in the next trap that might be waiting for us. 1967 Six-Day War, in which Israel launched a preemptive strike on Egypt and then won a lightning-fast victory against Arab forces led by Egypt, Jordan, and Syria, was a signal moment in 20th century history. Israel's astonishing, rapid-fire victory led to the U.S. materially promoting Israel's military supremacy across the region. The war also extended Israeli control over Gaza, the West Bank, and East Jerusalem, which became the occupied territories, as well as the Sinai and Golan Heights. From then on, the Palestinian national struggle would not just be waged against Zionist control over the territory that became the state of Israel in 1948, but also against the occupation of Gaza, the West Bank, and East Jerusalem. That is the struggle whose history I'll be discussing next week with Tarek Bakoni, the author of Hamas Contained, The Rise and Pacification of Palestinian Resistance. Next up is an interview I recorded with Bakoni and Arakat in May 2021, amidst Palestinian resistance to the eviction of families from the Jerusalem neighborhood of Sheikh Jarrah and the brutal Israeli reprisals, particularly on Gaza, that followed. Bakoni discusses Hamas and Israel's violent equilibrium, an implicit arrangement that has, over the past two weeks, collapsed and likely changed forever. Nura Erekat and Tarek Bakoni, welcome to The Dig. Thank you for having us, Daniel. Thanks for having us, Daniel. I don't know if any conflict in the world where media coverage accomplishes so much, I guess, like gaslighting. The New York Times and other publications, they describe the incredible violence done by Israel against Palestinians, but then they go on to insist in the very same articles on framing the conflict not as an asymmetric one rooted in a settler colonialist apartheid state, but as this tragedy with both sides. What role does the mainstream media play in legitimating Israeli apartheid? And do you see any cracks beginning to emerge this time around? 
It's absolutely exhausting, Daniel. It's absolutely exhausting to um, be also subject to the barrage of the mainstream media narrative, which has been completely dishonest, if not acquiescent and compliant, thereby complicit in a project of war making and removal of Palestinians. The media is part and parcel of it. Um, one of the the ways that the, the, the media has framed this is to completely take this out of time and out of space. And so they refer to every particular moment as the moment of crisis, wanting to ask, how did we get here? What? How do you explain the escalation in the past eight days in a way that continuously obscures that there has been a structure, that there is a struggle, that this is a freedom struggle? Um, and so much that has been asked of us, myself, Tariq, Diana Butto, Yusuf Munayyar, um, Ayel Ghazawi, Asam Adwan, who you had on yesterday, Maryam Berghouti, Yara Hawari, and so many other Palestinians who have been called to speak to the media is not only to share the story, but frankly, to be to serve as a corrective. Whether it be to the misleading headlines that frame the killing of Palestinians in the passive voice as if they were killed by some hurricane and not by Israeli missiles that are provided by the United States. Whether it be to correct headlines that read Israel-Gaza conflict in order to play on a public imagination that's associated Gaza with Hamas and thereby a militant base rather than a home, neighborhoods for two million Palestinians, families, parks, schools, community centers, bookshops, clinics, right? All the things that express life. It's been um, incredibly exhausting to have to battle that kind of framing before we get to a discussion of, well, where did this all come from? So one of the things that I've noticed is that, that there has been a steady shift and the largest part because of Palestinian resistance, but also because of solidarity, as well as social media and the ability to overcome and transcend, you know, these media conglomerates who otherwise are are obscuring um, this framework. And I've seen a shift that where, you know, we were talking about this earlier. I'm so used to um, getting on television to, to basically be subject to a hostile interview, right? Where I've trained myself to listen to a few key words, to not respond to the accusation and instead be able to intervene with some information to, uh, you know, hopefully millions of people watching. What we've seen then shift is now then Palestinians getting a platform and being able to tell their story, being able to say, not just we are not the terrorists, but then being able to say this is apartheid, this is settler colonialism. And now again, a new shift of what I'm seeing is pointing out and highlighting as an ep epistemic matter. Why did the media frame it in this way? Why has it been obscuring this? And now this gets to much deeper question about, you know, let's be honest, the media has been invested in protecting Israel as well in order to avoid a conversation about an agreement between Western civilization of how to atone for anti-Jewish violence. And in that moment, rather than dealing with the white supremacy that is the root cause of, of anti-Semitism in, in, in an enlightenment Europe, so to speak, uh, they then pivot the entire question of anti-Semitism to whether or not Israel can be sustained 
as an apartheid reality in the Middle East, as a wedge between the African and Asian continents against the will of the people, and then frames that the greatest threat to Jewish people is now Muslim marauders hell-bent on violence and Jew-hating, rather than, and, and what that does is avoids the entire conversation about white supremacist violence that has produced this and, and obscures the conversation that rather than combating that violence, Zionism has internalized it and reproduced it and is, is both subjecting Palestinians to removal and erasure, but also subjecting its non-European uh, descendant Jews to a structure of racism as well. I think we're seeing the same thing in U.S. politics as we are in the media, perhaps that while, of course, politicians, so many are still reciting the same old talking points, condemning Hamas and defending Israel's, quote, right to defend itself. We're also seeing, I think, more outspoken support for Palestinian freedom than ever before in American politics, including multiple members of the squad led, of course, by Rashida Tlaib, naming Israel as an apartheid state. And polls show that Democratic voters are moving rapidly to support Palestine, younger Jews, in the U.S., increasingly alienated from Israel, and even staunchly pro-Israel Democrats in Congress are crossing APAC and expressing some criticism right now, however pathetically tepid. But still, obviously Biden is still committed to supporting BB and Israel no matter what it does, it seems. But do you two think that these shifts offer some hope? I do. I do think that they offer some hope. I mean, I'd want to go back a bit to the, the points that Nuro was making about the, the, the media shifting as well. I think one of the fundamental things that is happening is that, and we're talking here specifically, I'm, I'm talking, you know, Western media, predominantly English uh, language uh, uh, media. There's been a shift in the sense that the, the Israeli narrative, the, the Zionist narrative was one that was embraced I think, historically by the media, uh, uncritically, in a way that took it at face value and re, re, uh, internalized and reproduced the Orientalist gaze. So looking at the Palestinians very much uh, as a subject of Western civilization and uh, as, as not necessarily as people who deserve political rights, but as religious minorities or as nomadic people or as, you know, humanitarian social phenomena, but not necessarily as people who had political rights. That is what is now being challenged. The idea that you can dehumanize Palestinians to the level that they become passive subjects, uh, if they appear at all, and uh, that and or they become terrorists or uh, subjects of humanitarian intervention or any of the tropes that could be used to re to shed Palestinians of their livelihoods and of their humanities, those become part and parcel of the of the media narrative. And what we're seeing is that there are cracks appearing in that. Uh, and I, I just want to sort of mention some examples. I mean, all the, the examples that Nuda gave were spot on. But we need to also think about, uh, you know, when, when Palestinians are invited into these spaces, they're often invited as witnesses of their struggle, as witnesses of their tragedies, not as analysts, not as people who are able to come in with expertise to talk about what's happening because their analysis has to be subjected to what the West thinks is the right way of viewing certain things. And that's already in a colonial prism. It's already in a prism of American imperialism. 
unless you abide by that prism, you're seen as someone who is lesser than or is, is working uh, in a structure that is misunderstood or that needs to be fought against. Whereas the Israeli narrative, obviously, it's a colonial Western narrative. It fits into that narrative. So Palestinians have always been fighting an uphill battle to be included in the media as uh, agents, as the, the people who are analyzing their struggle and talking about their struggle, not as passive witnesses to what's being inflicted on them. And I think when I think about the, the, the media landscape over the past five or 10 years, I think there are huge shifts that are happening, which is the result of, of Palestinian mobilization and solidarity uh, with allies who are working to change that landscape. But specifically over the past two or three years, Black Lives Matter was instrumental in the shift that we see now because they were able to show that that kind of structural discrimination and structural violence that's in, that's present in the media, the blind spot that that you know white even white liberals have, the blind spot that they have uh, against uh, about racism, about discrimination in uh, the the discourse, the media discourse that uh, has I think shattered something that allowed other indigenous populations and other minority groups to be able to show that that blind spot actually exists beyond just African-Americans, let's say, if we're talking in the U.S. And so it's created an opening that uh, I think Palestinians are now benefiting from. I want to talk about Israeli politics, where it seems as though the imminent contradictions of settler colonialism present since the very beginning of Zionist settlement have really come to the surface. Likud and even more extreme right parties dominate. Labor has all but collapsed. And Israeli politics are in a state of permanent crisis as Netanyahu's repeated inability to form a majority leads to election after election as he seeks to evade prosecution for corruption. Did the Zionist project make labor Zionism impossible and the right-wing dominance that we see today inevitable? I mean, I think it's very difficult to sort of think about you know what might have been but i would err on the on the the line of saying that this was in some ways the natural culmination of what the zionist project is in palestine it was always meant to be uh, the creation of a jewish homeland in historic palestine and i think the expansionist nature of that project began and expanded under labor, not under Likud. So we're already thinking about a false division between Likud and labor or right and left in Israeli politics, which does not go to the heart of what uh, is, is in truth already a settler colonial project that is looking to displace Palestinians. Now, I, the reason why I say it's difficult to say what could have been is because there was a moment in time when the Palestinian leadership wrongly, in my opinion, acquiesced to partition and legitimated a project of settler colonialism on the majority, 78% of their homeland. And in doing so, created an opportunity where there might have been partition and there might have been a continuation of a process where Palestinian citizens of Israel do in fourth or fifth or sixth generations think of themselves exclusively as Arab Israelis and where Palestinians become restricted to 22% of their land and that partition exists. And that could have been the product of a peacemaking industry committed to making the survival of a settler colonial state in the land of historic Palestine viable. But make no mistake, that outcome would have already been a legitimation of something that was deeply, deeply problematic, a structure of violence that would have already disenfranchised 
millions of Palestinians from their rights. Now, it could have happened. And there's a million ways that we could have argued about the historical projection of how Zionism unfolded in the land of historic Palestine. But it is, we are at a moment now where the, the arrogance and the greed of the Israeli political establishment, which is fed by a, an international uh, carte blanche that allows them to maintain a structure of expansion and, and colonization uh, with impunity, that overreach, that greed has allowed the, the Israeli political system to think that they could move forward uh, and get away with it. And I think what we're witnessing now is a backlash of that moment. Part of the reason that I think the current moment in time is so inspiring is because it sort of goes to the heart of rejecting not just the expansion. It's not just rejecting the settlements. It's not just rejecting the blockade. It's going back to the roots of the Palestinian struggle and rejecting the fundamentals of what the Israeli state is today. And I think in doing that, it's going back to this idea that, you know, partition may have been a pragmatic, quote unquote, compromise that the Palestinian leadership may have been cornered into. Even the Palestinian leadership today might still think that that's the only, quote unquote, feasible way to go forward. The truth of the matter is that that would have been a compromise that is too high for the Palestinian people. And now I think Palestinians are reclaiming their agency and rejecting all forms of compromise. They're rejecting all forms of partition because actually the issue isn't what, what liberal, labor Zionists could have given us if they hadn't gone into settlements. The issue is that there was Jewish settlement, Zionist settlement in the land of historic Palestine. So the issue is rooted in 48, not in 67. And so, you know, regardless of what the political differences are within the Israeli political system, there is a fundamental issue that needs to be addressed. Nura, what do you make of this trajectory of Israeli politics just towards new and new right-wing extremes and the fact that the, just the fundamental contradictions of Israeli Zionist politics and society seem increasingly impossible to reconcile? So I would add uh, a couple of things only and, and just affirm that there, I think it's fantasy for people to believe that there is a significant distinction between labor and Likud. It was a labor government that actually initiated uh, the settlement um, enterprise in the West Bank. It was the later labor government that oversaw the settlement expansion within the newly established state of Israel. It was the labor government that established the first 350 settlements that oversaw the martial law regime against the Palestinians who remained who established, who adopted all of the British empire's emergency rule um, and placed them discriminatorily on Palestinians in order to continue a process of removal and um, implantation of Jewish Zionist settlers. So that we don't see Likud be, uh, even come onto the politi Israeli political scene until 1977. So to then make this about, you know, lamenting, oh, but labor actually had a vision. What, what, what we should lament is the beginning of Zionism, which was, you know, for, for some was uh, about not just an establishment of a state within, in Palestine, but had something to do with a vision for Jewish emancipation that gets co-opted by a Western civilizational analysis and a colonial framework that basically sees brown and black bodies as redundant. 
either redundant or to be exploited. So that would be the first. The second thing I want to say is that the Israeli left has been decimated. And I would blame all of the liberal Zionists who have insisted that you approach Israel as an ally and a friend, but without accountability, without punishment, without forms of sanctions, right? That's what we saw in J Street as it continuously blocked attempts to boycott, divest, and sanction Israel out of one side of its mouth, but insist on some sort of equitable outcome on the other side. You can't have that, right? The Israeli left has been decimated, especially since the second Palestinian Intifada, and are now part, are now, you know, I get texts from people who are as Jewish Israelis afraid to go out into the street because they'll be attacked as well. Or Jewish Israelis that are afraid to sign on to petitions because they will be punished as well. And so in fearing for their own, you know, their own forms of um, vulnerability are not speaking out on behalf of Palestinians and have allowed and paved the path to the ascendance of a settler, um, Israeli settler movement to the center of Israeli government, to its helm. Um, what I find really shocking is it seems to be that no matter what Israel does, how much it speaks its own truth from its own mouth when it says, we're going to turn Gaza into a parking lot. Ayelet Shaked saying that Palestinian mothers give birth to Palestinian stakes or saying that, you know, chanting death to Arabs or organizing themselves in Jewish Zionist gangs with the protection of the police to attack other Palestinians. It seems that irrespective of all that, there is somehow a congenital inability to contend with the fact that Jewish supremacy and anti-Palestinian racism is constitutive of the Zionist project from its liberal flank to its most rightist core. It is about preserving Jewish Zionist supremacy at all costs. It is after that preservation and achievement that you they then begin to think about, well, what can be then uh, given to the Palestinians now? What's insult to injury is that in that aftermath, in that afterthought, we're also expected to then compromise with those crumbs. Nura, You've written about how the U.S.-sponsored so-called peace process not only strengthened Israel's position, but weakened the Palestinian Liberation Organization, which in turn facilitated the emergence of Hamas, which was founded as an outgrowth of the Muslim Brotherhood in 1987, but had prior to that been entirely, you know, basically non-political from its 1946 founding. And today, and Tarek, I know this is something you've written quite a bit about, Israel uses Hamas and its armed resistance as a pretext for their own brutality constantly. Tarek, how has Israel over the years sought to shape the opposition to their apartheid and occupation regime? And to what end have they been shaping it? Well, look, if we look at the Gaza Strip today, I actually think that understanding this history is fundamental for us to understand how the blockade is so sustainable. As I said uh, a few minutes ago, Hamas has created a fig leaf or offered a fig leaf for Israel to allow uh, the, the Israeli government to get away with the blockade and to excuse the blockade as a response to Hamas and to Hamas's quote-unquote terrorism against Israel. This is the product of an Israeli effort to portray any form of Palestinian resistance, and in this case, resistance armed struggle from Hamas, as a form of terrorism. Over the course of the past 14 years, a dynamic has emerged between Israel and Hamas. Uh, it's a violent equilibrium where what the Israelis do is they allow Hamas to exist 
as a governing authority that is taking care of 2 million Palestinians that the Israeli government does not have to take care of, that the Israeli government outsources their humanitarian needs to countries like Qatar and to the international community to take care of and maintains them enclosed in a strip of land that Hamas then governs, right? That uh, reality allows the Israeli government to get rid of 2 million Palestinians and to sort of remove uh, their responsibility from Israel, obviously all for demographic reasons, to make sure that Israel maintains a Jewish majority or the the semblance of a Jewish majority in this sort of architecture of, of occupation and blockade that exists. Now, Hamas plays into that in the sense that Hamas exists now as Palestinian resistance movement with its own territory, with its own base that is obviously not liberated because it's under occupation and under blockade, but where within that territory, there are no occupation forces. Palestinians can move about without being targeted or harmed or harassed or killed by Israeli occupation forces. There's a relative freedom within the Gaza Strip. Uh, that is fundamental for Hamas to develop power and to develop its own military infrastructure. So that equilibrium has manifested in uh, a, a sort of a, a lang- what, what scholars have called a language of violence. The, obviously, the violence of the blockade means that Hamas then resists that violence using rocket fire. When rocket fire reaches Israeli shores, Israel is then forced to concede. It's forced to either open uh, borders, for, uh, not borders, open the fence for a bit, allow, ease the blockade, allow some uh, trucks to come in, and uh, uh, ultimately ease life in Gaza while maintaining the architecture of the blockade uh, as it stands. Uh, From the Israeli perspective, what they call for is calm, which means no rocket fire and Palestinian acquiescence to the blockade. And what Hamas does is refuse to give calm as long as the blockade is in place because the blockade itself is a structure of violence. So that equilibrium has been sustainable and has worked for both Uh, Hamas and for Israel for the past 14 years. What is so incredible about this moment in time is that Hamas's firing of rockets at Jerusalem took Israel by complete surprise because it overturned this rule. It overturned these rules of the game that we will uh, rocket fi- uh, fire rockets only when we need access into the Gaza Strip or when we need to loosen the blockade. And when you meet us halfway through a flimsy ceasefire, you will have quote-unquote calm until the next iteration. This process, the Israelis have called mowing the lawn, right? What has happened now is saying, actually, we're not going to be limited to the Gaza Strip. We're going to be limited to defending Palestinians everywhere, specifically in Jerusalem, specifically in Al-Aqsa. This is an overturning of an equilibrium that has taken root over the past 14 years. And I think it's transformational uh, in terms of how also Israel is looking at uh, is, is looking at the Gaza Strip. But there's another change that is very difficult to talk about, you know, based on our conversation now about where the, the media is, uh, but also 
fundamental to understand. When Hamas began firing rockets in order to protect Jerusalem from Israeli aggression, it was opening up space for Palestinians to reclaim agency and for Palestinians to be in a position where the, the right to self-defense is not only a right that Israel and the Israeli Jews can claim, but also that Palestinians can claim. By the time their first rocket had fallen on Israeli territory, 500 Palestinians had been injured in Jerusalem. But the first time we, we heard the international community talk about the right to self-defense, it came when the first rocket uh, entered Israeli airspace. And so what happened is a fundamental shakeup of this idea that actually Palestinians have to be acquiescent to have uh, any kind of concessions from Israel or to move forward or to be accepted by the political uh, community. The struggle that we're seeing now is a struggle that has to be expansive. It includes popular protests and people in the street, but it also includes armed resistance. It should be armed resistance in the form of, in, in accordance with international law, and it should safeguard the lives of civilians. But armed resistance is a, an appropriate way to deal with a militarized regime that is bent on killing and destroying Palestinian lives. And so in that sense, that's a fundamental shakeup that's happening in Palestinian politics, because it's not only breaking out of the idea that we need to be passive, that has the Oslo straitjacket that has informed what the Palestinian Authority is, but it's also created room for the Palestinians to see that in their political engagement, there are different facets of struggle. There are legal struggles and there are military struggles and there are popular struggles and there are economic struggles in the strikes and in the in the economic sanctions that are being called on. And all of those are different forms of struggle that are serving the same cause and that are moving us all in the same direction. And rather than sort of the divide and rule that had informed, you know, the difference between the PA adopting diplomatic measures or Hamas adopting military means and people being restricted from even move, moving or protesting, we're seeing a shaking up, we're seeing a shaking off of that. And we're seeing a sort of a more inclusive discourse that is making room for different forms of struggle against a single regime. Tadek, I wanted to follow up on a point you made about how violence is represented in the conflict. Today, Israel constantly points to Hamas rockets that have killed a very small number of Israelis to justify just repeated massacres of very large numbers of people in Gaza. But just a few years ago, Israel got away with massacring civilian protesters at the border with Gaza. How, how is it that any form of Palestinian resistance, nonviolent or violent, is delegitimated at the same time as Israel's overwhelming military assaults are normalized? And what role in particular does the demonization of Hamas and then Hamas, the demonized Hamas's association with Gaza, what, what role does that play in it all? I think let me start by talking not just about the role of violence, but just this this framework in which Israel has been very successful at pushing forward in the Western discourse and in the international community, which is the framework of terrorism. When we think about what's happening in the Gaza Strip, the first thing that most Western diplomats or media would think about is that the Gaza Strip is a terrorist enclave and that the blockade is put in place in the Gaza Strip because Hamas came to power and took over the Gaza Strip. The Gaza Strip has been a, a pain for Israel since Israel's establishment. And the reason for that isn't because uh, Hamas is in power or Hamas is in the Gaza Strip. Hamas 
was created as a movement in 1987. The reason is because the Gaza Strip has 2 million Palestinians, the majority of whom are refugees and want to return to homes that are now in Israel. In order to deal with that reality, the Israeli, successive Israeli governments have dealt with the Gaza Strip through isolation, through bombardment, through excessive force, through sanctions, through, through uh, uh, threats of expulsion. Uh, the, the violence that has been directed at the Gaza Strip long predates Hamas. What Hamas has done inadvertently is provide the Israeli government with a fig leaf. Now, suddenly, there's an excuse for the blockade of the Gaza Strip. Now, suddenly, there's an excuse for the use of excessive force, and that excuse is terrorism. And so in that kind of framework, in that framing, if this is the, the sort of the uncritical narrative that we want to hold on to, there is no excessive force, because what is being shot at in the Gaza Strip are not people. They're terrorists. So when we have protests at the fence of Palestinians marching to return to their homes, and we have uh, Israeli snipers uh, literally snipering off uh, unarmed civilians and medics and journalists, and we have the International Criminal Court carrying out an investigation and showing that Israel is is, uh, possibly violating international law and carrying out war crimes against uh, protesters and, and civilians in Gaza, that then becomes excused under the rubric of terrorism and under the rubric of self-defense. What gets lost in that story is the fact that the framework itself, the the structure itself of the blockade, of Israeli military rule, of the occupation, is itself far more violent and far more lethal and far more oppressive than any violence that has gone back into the Israeli territory or against Israeli civilians. Now, I say that while fully condoning, while, while, while fully rejecting any use of force against civilians, that is my own moral compass. And I do not think that civilians should be targeted. And in that sense, Hamas's indiscriminate rockets are, for me, uh, beyond the pale. However, in thinking about the structure of the violence that we're talking about, there is no symmetry when we think about uh, what the Palestinians are doing in terms of their armed struggle for liberation and what the Israelis are doing in terms of sustaining and recreating and reproducing a structure of violence that has lasted for since the creation of the State of Israel that is fully funded and fully uh, protected diplomatically by members of the international community, for, first and foremost being the U.S. Nura. Again, everything that I said, and I'll add a couple things. Number one is to just, you know, highlight again. I, I think your listeners are much more critical, Daniel, but I want to highlight a few things again for the listeners. Number one, all people who are under racial regimes, colonial domination and alien invasion have the right to use force. This is sanctioned within a framework of international law that in 1977 was, you know, captured in the second additional proto- uh, first additional protocols article 1 subsection 4 in the heyday of third world revolt. Palestinians now as they use force seem to be out of you know, out of time because they're the last outstanding, one of the last outstanding agenda items on that third world agenda, that anti-colonial agenda. So that's number one. Number two, Israel has been dominating and using violence against Palestinians 
well before Hamas was established in 1987. It occupies Gaza the first time in 1956 when it has to withdraw at the insistence of Dwight D. Eisenhower, who's concerned that um, Israeli, British, and French aggression in the Middle East can create a space for Soviet intervention. But they occupy again in 1967, pass a secret resolution that basically, you know, wants to bring Gaza within its power grid because Zionism has an insatiable territorial appetite. Hamas isn't established until 1987, doesn't launch its first rocket until 2001 in response to the advent of Israel's assassination policy of Palestinians who are already under occupation. So anybody that is paying attention and then uses, you know, wants to look at the Hamas rockets as an equivalence or somehow that there's this you know, there's just warfare and that everybody needs to stop. Um, one needs to pay attention that stop for whom? After those, after that spectacular violence ends, the structural violence continues in the form of siege, in the form of apartheid, in the form of settler colonialism. And, you know, it reminds me of uh, Franz Fanon's observation that liberals are only concerned when violence, when the natives begin to use it. And so for me, my message would be to those listeners who are so concerned uh, with that with, with that violence. And if you want to forefront it and make it an equivalent and, you know, I think thought it was right that to, to, to distinguish between the legitimate right to use force versus the indiscriminate use of force, which is frankly not because uh, I think because Hamas is recklessly targeting, which it is, um, but they don't have they have crude weapons. They're under siege. They don't have access. So make that distinction at the very least. And the second thing that I would say is that if you were truly concerned about an end to violence, then you have to call for the demilitarization of Israel. You have to demand that it sign on to the Non-Proliferation Treaty. You have to demand that U.S. Uh, military support be conditioned at least to U.S. laws. I would say cut it completely, right? You have to call for sanctions on Israel. You cannot say that you've de-escalated this moment without ending the siege. The siege cannot continue. There is no military solution. Israel admits there's no military solution to the situation in Gaza, which means that at the very least that we cannot move forward and accept again that we enter into another cycle, as we've seen, uh, without ending the siege on Gaza as the bare, bare, bare minimum in this moment. I'm Aziz Rana, and you're listening to The Dig, a great place for analysis about where we are, how we got here, and what can be done. It's my favorite podcast, and you can support it at patreon.com. This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our listeners who support us at patreon.com and by Haymarket Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like is An Enemy Such As This, Larry Casus in the fight for native liberation in one family on two continents over three generations by David Correa, now available in paperback. This is the remarkable true story of an indigenous family who fought back over multiple generations against the crushing power of settler colonial violence. From the genocidal Mexican war against the Apaches in the 19th century, through the collapse of European empires in the early 20th century, and culminating in the late 20th century efforts of young Navajo organizers to confront settler colonialism in New Mexico, an enemy such as this offers a resolutely native-focused history of colonialism. Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz describes the book as a breathtaking and original historical narrative 
that is also a page turner. Find an enemy such as this at haymarketbooks.org, where readers in the US and UK receive free shipping on orders over $25 and 20 pounds, respectively. The next segment draws upon my discussion of Zionism's civil war with Ido Conrad and Joshua Leifer from April of this year. Amid intense domestic conflict, pitting secular liberal and centrist Jews against a growing Israeli far-right and religious right-wing, we discussed what sort of state Israel is and how ordinary settler colonial Zionist history had brought Israel to such a seemingly extremist breaking point. That divide has been briefly, although far from fully, subsumed in the wake of Hamas's attack in the war on Gaza, and it has not gone away. Ido Conrad was at the time the editor-in-chief of 972 Magazine, an independent magazine run by a group of Palestinian and Israeli journalists. Joshua Leifer is a contributing editor at Jewish Currents and a Dissent editorial board member. Josh Leifer and Ido Conrad, welcome to The Dig. Thanks so much for having us. Thank you. This should be obvious to most listeners, but, but we've got to start an episode on this conflict over Israeli democracy by explaining what sort of democracy Israel is, and really whether it's accurate to describe it as any sort of democracy at all. Because Israel, it seems, is an ethnocracy that practices a complex, variegated form of apartheid, both within the state of Israel and then also in the occupied territories. And Josh, you write it's not even really a demos that is ultimately sovereign in Israel, but, but rather an ethnos. How does the Israeli system operate not within the confines of what's being portrayed as a quote-unquote domestic conflict within Israel, but how does it operate as a totality? Yeah, I mean, how to define the regime in Israel-Palestine is is a very difficult question. There have been a lot of different attempted answers. Some scholars have called it an ethnocracy because it's a state that was designed to privilege an ethno, specifically the Jewish people. And one of the things that has come to the fore in the recent protests is that like that idea of the state isn't being so much challenged that the state was built for the Jewish people and the Jewish people are the only relevant demographic within within the state that that makes decisions even though about 20% or more of the state's population are not Jews but i also think it's important to to note that the blurriness of how to define reality in Israel is intentional. Part of how the occupation has been able to persist for as long as it has is that it's a nominally temporary occupation that is uh, maintained in perpetuity and that is not formally annexed, but is ruled by the Israeli military through a series of basically emergency decrees that have been institutionalized. I mean, for years, there's been conversations among scholars and activists, really led by Palestinians, about the definition, finding a new definition to describe the regime between the river and the sea. And I think, first of all, this was to counter this idea of Israel as a Jewish and democratic state, which is what Israel you know, has always told the world that it is, that it can both be Jewish and uphold the democratic rights of its non-Jewish citizens. And Palestinians have have really led the charge over the last few years to to upend that definition, to challenge it, to try and bring in new ways of thinking about this regime. And, you know, whether they talk about apartheid or they talk about settler colonialism or they talk about ethnocracy, there's there's good ways to think about all these definitions and how they apply. But at its core, 
what I like to refer to it is, is uh, what Shira Robinson, the historian Shira Robinson, calls a liberal settler state in which there is some kind of compromise between the settler ambitions of the settler colonial ambitions of the state, which go to its DNA, to its core, to its very, even before the state was established, and these, these kind of democratic trappings of elections and equal rights. Ido and I have talked recently about, about Shea Robinson's book, which is called Citizen Strangers. It's, an ama- it's, it's amazing and, and highly recommend that people take a look at it, which is that what makes Israel a liberal settler state is that it, it takes the liberal emphasis on procedural neutrality and, and upholds it on the one. And so it can say, look, we extended the franchise to Palestinian citizens of Israel, but the entire mechanisms of the state are devoted towards not only making Jewish settlement permanent, but allowing it to expand basically indefinitely. And that the settler side of the state is also about making it impossible for settlement to be undone, for Palestinian refugees to return. Now, post-1967, for settlements to be to be withdrawn. And that's part of also the reason why you could say that the regime is fractured in the way that it is, because the fracturing of the regime across different tiers uh, also divides Palestinians into different different kinds of subjects, and that makes it more difficult for them to resist. So within 1948 Israel, you have Palestinians who are citizens of the state of Israel. Then you have East Jerusalem Palestinians who are residents of East Jerusalem, but are not citizens of Israel. And Israel unilaterally annexed East Jerusalem, but at that annexation is not internationally recognized. And then you have the West Bank, where Palestinians are, are subjects of Israeli military rule, but also exist within the legal fiction that is the Palestinian Authority. And all of this, when you zoom out, makes it very, very difficult to have a coherent Palestinian national political struggle between the river and the sea. And that that is one of the successes of, of the Zionist movement, that it has managed to fracture the Palestinian national movement in this way is to make it very difficult to resist. It makes a really cogent analysis of what's going on difficult not only for the, for the Palestinian national movement, but also for us as people looking on, as people who are trying to resist or people who are in solidarity, people who are studying this topic. It, it makes it really, really difficult to, to understand what's what's happening all the time and to see all these moving parts and how they affect one another. I think also at, at the end of the day, it's important to say that Israel doesn't have internationally recognized borders even today. You know, like the occupation is is an expansion of this kind of this colonial impulse, the this settler colonial impulse, or just plain settler colonialism that's at the heart of the Zionist project, because the, the, the project of colonization is not yet over. Israel is still colonizing land in the occupied West Bank. It's still taking land in the Galilee, which is inside Israel's formal borders, and in the Negev, in the Nakab Desert. It's still taking land. It's still proposing to establish new Jewish-only settlements. So this colonial project is from the moment that Zionist settlers landed in Palestine. And until today, this project is ongoing. You know, in in many ways, settler colonialism is an ongoing project everywhere, no matter how longstanding any particular settler colonial project is, let's say the United States. But Israel is still very much in the kind of the foundational phase of its settler colonial project. The people who came here and wanted to establish a Jewish state came to a place that was surrounded by Palestinians and Arabs. And they just picked a place, I think, that 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 kind of project will be in, unstable in the long run. Why have these ongoing conflicts within Zionist politics and 
conflicts that I think are much less visible to outsiders traditionally because of the so-called Israeli-Palestinian conflict, or in other words, the unified Zionist project of doing settler colonialism and apartheid. Why have these ongoing conflicts, which have been ongoing for quite a long time, reached this present crisis point in the way that they have around the issue of the courts and the independence of the judiciary? Partially because of May 2021, but partially because other processes that Israeli Jewish society has undergone. The right radicalized and became a revolutionary force. It has a it has a revolutionary political horizon. It wants to overthrow the existing order. It wants to annex the West Bank, and it wants to expel the Palestinians who are living there, whether that's after they refuse to agree to live as perpetually subjugated people in Bantu stands or not. That's the end goal. And people with this, with these views, have gained positions of power and are now in a position, at least they thought, to begin executing it. The reason why this has generated conflict is that on the there isn't really a countervailing force ideologically within Israeli society on a principled level, other than to say, like, we don't want, we don't want a judgment day war. We don't want a final decisive conflict. The 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 opposition to the radicalized right is is in general in opposition of maintaining the status quo, basically like apartheid maintenance versus expulsion and, and extermination. So at the political level, this tension has kind of reached re- reached a boiling point. It's not the only reason why the settler right wants to strip the judiciary of its power, but it is a large part of why it wants to do that. And within the settler right imagination, there's a long history of the institutions of the state repressing the movement of being obstacles to to their goal. And so now that they have seized the mechanisms of the state, they wanna they want to do the thing, basically. That to me is part of the reason why this has come to a head now. There are obviously like a lot of other contingent factors like Netanyahu, like political leader issues of political leadership, international affairs, all that all that stuff. But I but I, I think like at least at the ideological level, that seems to be what's happening. We we hear all the time that that Israeli democracy is at risk. How should people on the left, whose primary concern is solidarity with the Palestinian struggle, think about that? What should we make, as as Hadash leader Ayman Oda told, told you, Josh, what should we make of, quote, a defense of democratic structures at the expense of the essence of democracy? At this very moment of, of so-called domestic crisis in Israel, we have the stirrings of what, what may, according to, to some, be a, be a new intifada breaking out in the West Bank. Are there any possible openings for this for this uprising to change in some more fundamental way by Palestinians entering this so-called domestic conflict and thus changing its terms or or do the very terms of the debate as a conflict among the dominant Zionist class of the apartheid state? Does that inherently just preclude Palestinians from any meaningful involvement and thus any sort of deep qualitative change in, in the nature of the conflict? I mean, I think that what we're seeing out on the streets right now in this protest movement is part of a struggle over the future of Zionism, right? And the, the face of, of Zionism as it goes into the future in the face of Zionist uh, settler colonialism and apartheid, of course. And the fact that the symbol of these anti-government protests is the Israeli flag, I think, I won't speak for, I want Dane to speak for Palestinians. And uh, so, so, but I think that it, it would be, it, it's extremely difficult for them to see this flag being flown by the hundreds of thousands at every protest and the rhetoric, which is extremely militaristic for the most part with, you know, a few pockets of kind of 
more radical talk of equality, some even smaller pockets of people talking about equality uh, between the river and the sea. But for the most part, you hear the speeches on the stages, especially in Tel Aviv, you know, this kind of liberal, this so-called liberal bastion in Israel, where actually the speakers are much more militaristic. They come from the, the military apparatus and the, and the high-tech sector. These folks represent, I think, in the eyes of, of Palestinians, a past that they don't necessarily want to go to go back to. And so I think, is there a chance that something will shift and more Palestinians will join? Maybe, like, I don't want to be too overly deterministic about it. I don't know what's going to happen. And it'll depend, it'll really depend on what the far right does, you know, because they're also the ones in power. So they're, if you're holding on the levers of power, people are going to be reacting to that. And Palestinians may find some kind of opportunity to join it, uh, to join these protests. I don't see that happening, especially as, you know, as they're not part of this conversation about the future of of Zionism. Yeah, I mean, I think the figureheads, spokespeople, faces in a lot of ways of the current protests are war criminals. They are people who have managed the apparatus of the occupation, have carried out its its dirty work, whether they're pilots who who during Israel's wars, dropped bombs on, on Gaza or people who worked in the intelligence apparatus that tortures and abducts children in in their in their beds in the occupied West Bank. Like that, that those are the 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 people who have gotten up on stages and said, we have to defend democracy. I mean, I was talking to a friend about this, and it's like these people are almost they have the the relationship that they have between their rhetoric and their practice is like meat eating vegetarians. <laughs> um, and and that being said, I'm an Ode still gets out there and shows up occasionally, not all the time to all these protests. But you know, he he when I spoke to him last summer, this was obviously before all of this had happened. But I mean, he is in a very unenviable position. When he told me the line about the defense of the mechanisms or institutions of democracy at the expense of its essence, uh, he was referring to the court. And he was referring to a court that, in the view of the right, is an obstacle to its agenda. But for Palestinians, has basically green-lighted, has consistently green-lighted oppression, whether it's ruling that the settlements were not judiciable so they could continue, or all kinds of violations of Palestinian human rights in the name of security or, or the defense of the state. But at the same time, Ayman acknowledges openly in his remarks that were there no Supreme Court, if there wasn't an address for Palestinians to occasionally attempt to and win relief from oppressive measures, their situ the situation would be would be worse. I mean, I, this is a conversation that, that I, I know a lot of anti-occupation activists and people on the ground are having kind of in almost a circuitous way, like, What's better? Is it better for there to be a mask off situation where the Israel, where the settler right demolishes the last vestige, last remaining pretense of procedural democracy, and so there it the apartheid regime doesn't have recourse to this kind of like fig leaf, or would that also have material and like biopolitical impacts that would be disastrous for people? And even though we have to oppose the system in its entirety were the court to be stripped of the of its power in the way that the right wants to do, it would mean that there is no address for any kind of recourse for Palestinian citizens absent like forms of political resistance. And because that isn't really as live as it was 
in the past, although May 2021 also did see a kind of renewal of, of forms of identification with the Palestinian movement within 1948, it's not like there are other options, really, if there's a home demolition or if there's forms of illegal detention. I mean, these are often upheld by the court, but they are, but the fact that they are occasionally blocked by the court means in some sense that it that it does provide relief. It's hard to know whether or not this kind of burgeoning intifada, this third intifada that's happening in, in the West Bank right now, what kind of an effect it would have if it grows and continues and, and becomes, you know, maybe as large scale or close to as large scale as the, the first intifada or the second intifada, though. Uh, the conditions on the ground today are, are are far different than than back in those days. So it's a little bit hard to to say what will happen. Whether you know you have mass attacks against Israeli citizens and Israeli civilians, whether people will kind of snap back into the old Zionist consensus. It's 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 hard to say. I I, I think that no. I think that the answer to that is no. It doesn't mean that I don't know what kind of formation this kind of opposition camp will take when faced with kind of this judicial onslaught, this onslaught by the far right and potential uh, violent attacks by by Palestinians. All of a sudden you see people, I'll say, becoming radicalized by police brutality, becoming radicalized by pogroms, settler pogroms against Palestinians in the West Bank. Now, radicalization in and of itself is not necessarily a recipe for any change. You really need mobilization. You need new ideas. You need a third way. You need the Israeli radical left to come and say, okay, there is this crucial moment that's happening right now. We can stand on the sidelines and say, we're not, we're not participating. Or we can say, okay, let's take this to a place where we can educate people. We can further radicalize people. We can bring up ideas like decolonization, like a state for all of its citizens, like one state, full equality, talking about equality between the river and the sea. Uh, things that Palestinians have, you know, they were they have been the, the, the front runners of these ideas that now only, you know, the now people who are out in the streets are, are starting to, to, to wrap their minds around. I, I'm, I'm as pessimistic as Josh about the short run, I am optimistic about the long run because I think it'll, so many of the dynamics on the ground in Palestine, Israel are going to affect uh, what happens there. And I think that just in general, like what we're seeing happen now, I think for a lot of people, especially on the left and certainly Palestinians, they're kind of looking at it and they're saying, what is this? It's, you know, it's the, it's the Zionists fighting among themselves and, and, and that's fine. Like I, I respect that, but this moment, I think we need to find what the pressure points of of the Israeli regime are and how best to use those and exploit those in order to to move our project forward, a project for liberation and justice and equality forward. And I think that this kind of dynamic, this interplay is going to affect maybe even in the medium term, I hope in the medium term, the way that American Jewish organizations and, and, and the establishment are going to react to these things and maybe, maybe bring about some kind of accountability This last clip comes from my interview for May 2021 as Israel bombed Gaza, a conversation with two Gazans who were living through it. Teacher and BDS activist Aya Al-Ghazawi and journalist Issam Adwan, project manager for We Are Not Numbers. Aya Al-Ghazawi and Issam Adwan, welcome to The Dig. Yeah, thank you very much. To start off, what are you experiencing right now in Gaza, what have your lives been like since the beginning of Israel's most recent assault? So uh, our lives at this very moment is really difficult to be explained, imagining that you have a heavy responsibility 
to report the news from Gaza, uh, to write the stories behind numbers in the news, to go and to dig into details of those children and women died uh, in their homes, and the feelings of you being uh, the feelings of you being at risk of being bombed at any time, at any place, including your children, including your family members, your loved ones, or even imagining those people far away from you that, that they could die and you have to report them as well. We have gone through harsh circumstances, I would say, and some of them that we lost people that we cared about. And even those people that we don't know, like children and, and women, it's really depressing, it's really sad, and it makes you like cry out loud because you have no hand to help them. You'll only have to do after they died of the Israeli, uh, because of the Israeli bombardment, of course, all you have to do is to try to make them as a human beings as possible because the media outlets only care about them when they are numbers. So bearing this responsibility at the same time that putting your life at risk at some point and imagining the situation that you could lose your life at any moment, it's really suffocating, I would say. The least words that could be that could describe this properly is 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 suffocation. And after long hours of working on a in front of my computer and my mob, my mobile, you feel that you're being totally consumed and you're totally fell into depression and you don't see hope. You don't see hope in the, in the media outlets. You don't see hope in those vocabulary we are trying to use and the language that we, uh, the language that we learned and we are trying to express in the softest way to avoid a, the sensitivities of the Western communities and the sensitivity of the media outlets. But I believe after those, those 27 years of my life, I have lived those harsh, harsh circumstances and I've lived the same brutality and ongoing massacres committed. And I mean, in Gaza, like what happened in 2008, 2012, 2014, and this is the fourth one, I started to believe that I have every right to correct whatever terms and cliches the media stream uh, are using to describe my suffering. So it's it's like a cycle, what we have been living, what we have been living, I mean, in the context of this war and the previous wars and life in general for the past 15 years, we have been living, I would say, a cycle of death. We have people that we are being suffocated and being suffocating for the past 15 years Water is undrinkable. Jobs are barely found. There is no positive horizon. There is no future that I can imagine. There is no hope that I can see significant indications for. But we keep going because we have no alternative. We have no options. And whenever we express this cynical cycle of death, I would say, we protest for we protested for for instance during the Great March of Return 2008, uh, 2020. So far, still people died. We protested peacefully, which should be protected by the international law. Whenever we are doing anything possible to protect ourselves and to protest this cynical cycle, life of death, 
uh, we're always condemned by the international community. We are seen as terrorists, but they don't see us as people trying to live their lives in peace and dignity. Okay, um, thank you, Isam, for saying a lot, uh, a lot about the situation in Gaza and what we're suffering from. Uh, to me, the situation in Gaza is quite catastrophe. And Gaza is witnessing a state of terror, a state of genocide and massacres. You know, all day and night, you always get to, to hear explosions, um, massive uh, bombardments and uh, airstrikes all over the Gaza Strip. And you just wonder, is, is anybody of my family just, you know, uh, have got uh, killed now or, or injured? And am I going to be the next target of Israel? And what about my children? You always get to, to ask yourself those kind of questions and you are always in a state of uh, anxiety and a constant fear for your life and for your beloved ones. So just, you know, um, until now, Israel killed about 213 Palestinians, including 61 children, 36 women and um, 16, 16 elderly men uh, and uh, disabled men. This tells you a little more about the nature of Israel and the, the target span uh, of it. It doesn't target armed factions only, but it also targets civilians. So any, everybody in the Gaza Strip is a target uh, for Israel. And the thing is that we're talking about the fourth strongest army in the world, that is Israel, that has about 243 nuclear hits. It is the only state that has nuclear hits in the Middle East against 2 million uh, Palestinians locked down and caged and uh, the Gaza Strip, which is about 360 square kilometers and has become to be known as the biggest concentration camp on earth. So it doesn't matter uh, where Israel uh, hates, wherever it hates, there are people killed, there are uh, people injured, and there are homes flattened to earth. And when we, when we talk about homes, we're not talking about mere buildings and stones. We're talking about a, um, a struggle of a person who worked hard to build this place to, um, to make a home for his family and to start a new life, to create a, um, a family, children, etc. And this is extremely difficult. While people enjoy human rights for granted and they can't just get a job after they graduate and they can build a home and they can have children, we don't get to, to do this easily. We have to fight on a daily basis, we have to fight. We're talking about a Gaza Strip, which has a very high rate of poverty, a very high rate of um, unemployment, especially among youth. We're talking about a place where you have 97% of the water uh, undrinkable. And we're talking about Gaza, which the UN issued a report in which it expected Gaza to be uninhabitable by 2021. And now we are, we are still living in the same harsh conditions, but even the situation is getting worse. It is deteriorating. And when you, when you look at the news outlets, 
you see what is what, what they're focusing on is that Hamas is, is firing rockets from the Gaza Strip. They never tell you why. They never tell you why we are doing this and the reason behind what we're doing. The, the thing started in a Sheikh Jarrah neighborhood in occupied Eastern Jerusalem as 28 Palestinian families face danger of being ethnically cleansed. We're talking about 500 Palestinians in Sheikh Jarrah neighborhood. So Palestinians, they're called upon every Palestinian in historic Palestine to participate in their act of resistance and stand up with them. Hamas is a, an armed faction, or we have a, um, you know, part of Hamas which is armed, but it's still one of many factions who reiterated for what is happening in Jerusalem. And then comes Israel and collectively punishes Gaza, which again has a population of about 2 million people. This is not acceptable. This is a war crime. And I, another point is that Israel has been doing this for Palestinians since the very beginning of the Palestinian Nakba, that about um, 73 years ago. It has been ethnically cleansing Palestinians, killing them, imprisoning them, taking their homes and giving them to Israeli settlers, demolishing other homes, and etc. Even, even before Hamas came to existence. But again, Hamas is an oppression movement. It wouldn't have existed had not Israel started this settler colonial project of it. And we're talking about a, um, an, a series, an ongoing theory, series of this of ethnic cleansing and settler colonialism. And um, we are suffering from this and we are fed up with news media portraying us as if we are two equal sides because we're not and we can't be. And we are talking about a people under occupation who want to live in dignity, in peace, justice, freedom, and who want to their self-determination against a military occupation, which is supported by the biggest and the, the most uh, powerful countries in the world, especially its biggest ally, the, super, the sole superpower in the world, the US. Uh, just before I, I started this interview, I read an article that the US administration had, has decided to provide Israel with uh, seven, 735 million sales of women. It approved this on Monday, so it was just yesterday. As if not enough that the US administration provides Israel with $3.8 billion every year as part of the military aid. And eventually, Israel uses this aid and uses the F-16 and F-35, which are made by, by the US, against Palestinian civilians in Gaza. But I want to shed the light on another point, a very important point, which actually Palestine, all of Palestine is witnessing an uprising, not only in the Gaza Strip, but also in Jerusalem, the West Bank, and even in the 1948 territories. So it's not about armed resistance. And by the way, the armed resistance is guaranteed uh, for us as a people under um, occupation. And this is a, a right entitled 
to their right uh, to resist their occupiers by any means, whether by using nonviolent means of resistance, such as the boycott, divestment, divestment and sanctions, BDS movement, or using armed resistance uh, or any other means of resistance. This is our this is our right, and nobody can ask us and blame us for resisting our occupiers. I mean, what are Palestinians expected to do when they are being killed, when, they, when their homes are being threatened to earth, when their children are being uh, terrified? Are, are we expected to stay silent while, while we're being killed? This is what the world wants from us to do. I don't think that this is the, the right thing to do. And you don't have to be a Muslim or you don't have to be a Palestinian to understand our struggle or to take part in our struggle. It's enough for you to be a human being to feel this inflicted upon the Palestinian people, especially that we are not asking for much. We're just asking to implement our human rights, though the same rights that any people around the world enjoys for granted. And we are here in, in the Gaza Strip, in Palestine, we have to fight. How do you, and you can both answer this and, and respond to each other as well. How do you see Palestine and Palestinians in general and, and Gazans in particular portrayed in the global media? And how do those representations make you feel? Yeah, um, I think that the news media uh, outlets are portraying us as two equal sides. I mean, by us, uh, the Palestinian side and the Israeli side, uh, which is unacceptable, actually. The, the very, you know, the very um, idea that it displays the Zionist narrative means that news uh, outlets are justifying what Israel is doing to the Palestinian people. This is one point. But another point is that we're not talking about two equal sides. We're talking about a colonized people versus colonizers. We're talking about the oppressed versus the oppressors. Um, so this is very important. We need to shed the light on this. And a third point is that uh, sometimes I see that the Palestinian cause is portrayed as a, um, and reduced to a mere humanitarian crisis. But it's not a humanitarian crisis, and we don't need anybody to help. We don't need sympathy, but we need solidarity. We need the uh, people who love freedom around the world to stand uh, both with the Palestinian people um, and, and join our struggle until freedom, justice, and equality are obtained, and until the system of oppression that Israel stands for, namely, apartheid ends. We're talking about human beings. We're not talking about mere statistics and numbers. This is very important to us. And this is a very important part of, of what we do up here, not numbers, because we talk about people killed. We share their stories. And one of those stories, for example, is Shayma Abu Al-Awf who is only 21 years old and who was a third year uh, dental student and um, a bride to be. She was supposed to, to be uh, getting married in, in a month from now. And she was massacred. She was killed along with her mother 
and and uh, and, and and father and sister in Al Wahda Street massacre, as Israel had the entire block without any any prayer warning or notice, they just bombed the whole area, and 42 Palestinians were killed in that massacre, including Shema. Shema should be trying her wedding dress now. Shayma should be preparing for her final test and for the, 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 the parties and the um, invitation list and everything like this. But where is she now? She, she was killed. Her life, her dreams were stolen because of apartheid Israel. You know what? Talking about Gaza, you know, before the Israeli aggression actually, when, when people feel depressed, they choose to go to the, to the beach. And now the whole road that leads and goes to the, to the beach is destroyed, is completely destroyed. We hope to be still alive until this um, aggression ends. But I'm asking myself, where, where can we go to, to load off? I don't know. Everything in Gaza is completely destroyed. Gaza doesn't seem like Gaza we knew. Israel literally turned Gaza into a wasteland. Uh, I don't know how to describe it. Words and language fail, fail me to, to describe what I've been living. I mean, really. Uh, I lost my cousin in the 2008 aggression. It was very difficult for me because I was only in the sixth grade. And I could have lost my mother and elder brother as well. I just can't believe that we are still living the same scenes, the same scenario. It, has, it is happening. It happened in 2008, 2012, 2014, and it's happening now. And the world is silent. Israel hasn't been held accountable as well. So I don't know. Here in Palestine, we resist. We do resist. But we lack the solidarity of the international community at the formal level the official level, I mean. But what we see, what we bank on actually is the civil community, the mass mobilization with the Palestinian cause. This is what matters most to us because we see governments complicit and profit from Israel's oppression uh, of the Palestinian people. But we also see the solidarity of the, of the people around the world. Uh, I was actually overwhelmed with the um, rallies that uh, you know took place two days ago on the commemoration of the Palestinian Nakba, the 73rd um, Palestinian Nakba anniversary. And uh, people took to the street on, in all countries responding and heeding the call of Palestinians as we called upon them to take to the street to protest what Israel has been doing to, to the Palestinian people and to commemorate the 73rd anniversary of the Palestinian Nakba. This is very much, you know, spirit lifting to us. It really does make us feel that we're not alone and that our voice is being heard across the, the world. Now we are witnessing people are campaigning, demanding change and demanding the governments, especially the US government, because they have been contributing to this occupation for so long. They have been providing impunity to Israel. 
for those all, for all those human rights violations, they have been supporting Israel at the ICC, the, inter, at the International Criminal Court. They have been protecting Israel so far at any United Nations gathering, using the veto right to protect Israel whenever the Palestinian Authority trying to criminalize Israel and to impose sanctions over. Yes, I believe at, at this very moment, I have started to believe that the power of the people, the public, they can determine the policies of those governments. I understand governments are contributing to this occupation, but at some point, this cycle of if inhumanity, I would describe, at some level, it will be broken because the power of will of the public and the people. Yes, this is not a coincidence, by the way. This is not a coincidence. People have been suffering so far for the past 73 years. They have been, pay they have been paying heavy prices. Their lands are stolen. Their children are killed. Their wives are checked at, at, at every Israeli checkpoint. And so many severe human rights violations. So many. So I believe people are sick of this occupation. And that is why we're witnessing uprising all over Palestine as well. But definitely, and this is an important message, we can survive this alone. We have been paying with our blood, with our children, with our lands, those heavy prices, and absolutely with the total ignorance and turning the blind, uh, turning blind eye and deaf ears towards our suffering by the international community. So other prices will not be fulfilled and will not pay off, I would say, unless those uprisings and those protestings happening in the US, in UK, in Canada, Australia, and all over the world, I believe if they changed even a little bit, then a change would start to happen. It's not happening yet, but I came to hope, and I really hope that those heavy prices are not going in vain. Um, yeah, I would like to start with the, uh, a quote by um, the South African activist, Steve Rico. And it goes like, the most dangerous tool and weapon in the, hats, in the hands of the colonizer or the oppressed is the consciousness of the colonized or the oppressed. Which means that our struggle for liberation is not only about decolonizing the land, but also about decolonizing the mind. I see the current uprising as different. It doesn't look like any other uprising before. And it, it comes a, as a result of accumulative, accumulative work of resistance. You know, it comes and tells us that Israel has failed to fragment uh, the Palestinian people. Over the course of the, 70, the past 73 years, Israel tried to uh, divide us, whether geographically or even politically, to try to create this kind of, like each, each part has its um, own um, conditions or circumstances, like the West Bank and Gaza alone, Jerusalem alone, and then the 1948 uh, Palestinian citizens you know, of Israel. But this tells us that no, the Palestinian people is one hand. They act as a whole 
as a, a you know one unit not divided and they are fully aware of their national identity as palestinian people suffering from occupation settler colonialism and apartheid this is the nature of the palestinian people so we are one and our enemy is one and i would say that the past 25 years of if you tile negotiations the so-called peace negotiations and the uh, Oslo Accords and everything that came after the Palestinian Authority and stuff like that. We refuse all of this. Our generation refuses this. And we uh, loudly, out loudly say that our struggle is intergenerational and that we haven't forget and that uh forgetting, sorry, and that uh, Bungarian, the, the first prime minister of Israel was wrong when he said that the old will die and the young will forget. Because yes, it's true that the old uh, will die, but the young will never ever forget. So we are fed up of racist um, solutions and we are fed up of uh, partitioning Palestine and you know reducing the Palestinian people to only Gaza and uh, the West Bank and then looking up down in uh, cages and pantostans and then you know saying that look we're giving you land we're giving uh, you a state and you know an anthem and uh, stuff like that we, okay we are generous you know why because we are the indigenous Palestinians we are offering Israeli settlers to stay and live uh, in peace with us but after justice is realized and to live uh, in equality with equal rights. But we need to maintain in our minds that justice cannot be done without realizing, uh, or peace cannot be done without realizing justice. So our logo is no justice, no peace. The first step towards this one state solution is first taking down this apartheid regime. And this is what we have been calling for for so long, that Israel shouldn't be existed ever, because before 1948, Palestinians of our religions, including Jews, they used to live in peace and with dignity together. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once said, after noting that the profound hypocrisy and inherent barbarism of bourgeois civilization lies unveiled before our eyes, turning from its home, where it assumes respectable forms, to the colonies, where it goes naked. Whether podcasts similarly interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We're posting new episodes every week. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis. Our associate producer is Jackson Roach. Music by Jeffrey Brodsky. Our communications coordinator is Sylvia Atwood. Our senior advisors are Theorio Francos and Ben Maybe. Check out our vast archives at thedigradio.com. Follow us on Twitter at thedigradio. And please find us wherever you get podcasts and subscribe to this podcast. If it's on iTunes or another such platform, please also rate and review us. Those reviews help introduce us to new listeners. But what really does that is you telling your friends about the pod. Please make propaganda for us. 
And do find us at patreon.com and make a monthly contribution to keep this operation up and running strong. Even a few bucks is huge.